I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 12. This morning, as we begin the Advent season, we're going to visit Exodus 12, and and especially as we prepare for the Lord's table today, we're going to revisit one of the most famous events in the life of the scriptures. Even a lot of non-believers, non-Christians, and even non-church attenders are familiar with this story, but I want to show you and remind us of the connections between this story and the New Testament and see how this great event we call the Exodus and the Passover led to the cross. And what we'll see today is that the Bible places the cross of Jesus at the very center of the story of the gospel in the New Testament. The author of Exodus is Moses, the great prophet. In fact, he wrote the first five books of our Bible. We call it the Torah or the Pentateuch. And Moses, as the author here, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through verse 30 of Exodus 12. And Moses is going to give us two very important pictures here. A picture of salvation and a picture of judgment. And then we will fast forward to the New Testament, connect the dots, and see how all of this points to the cross of Christ. That will lead us directly into the Lord's table. So, first of all, verses 1 through verse 28, Moses gives us here a beautiful picture of salvation. And the key word, as I unfold this first section, is substitution. That is the key word. I'm going to step back as I often do, especially if I'm in a book we have not been in for a while, and just give a quick high-level overview. The book of Exodus, as it opens, so picture a play beginning and the curtain opening. Uh, God's chosen people, they're called the Hebrews, they are in slavery in Egypt. They are miserable. They have been there for some time. Miserable conditions. As a result, God finally just says, I'm going to deliver you. He sends Moses, the prophet, to confront, imagine doing this, kids, young people. God sent him to confront the most powerful man on earth and give him a message that he wouldn't like. And so God sends him to confront Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most powerful warlord on the planet. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Moses went to Pharaoh and said on behalf of Yahweh, behalf of God, let my people go. And Pharaoh infamously responds with one of the dumbest statements any human being could make, which is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Not a good thing to say. And yet there are some here this morning who are quietly whispering those very words in your heart this morning. Who is God that I should obey him? You can say it loudly. You can say it softly. You can say it quietly in your own heart. It's just same old rebellion that's gone on for centuries. Well, Pharaoh would soon find out who God was very clearly. God sends a whole series of plagues, 10 in all, horrific plagues on Egypt. And God takes full credit. He's, I'm the one sending these destructive plagues <clears throat> on Egypt. And the final plague, if you turn back just one chapter to chapter 11, is the plague on the firstborn. It is the 10th plague. It is a horrible plague. And God says he is the one sending it. And it's death to every firstborn male, including that of animals, interestingly. So for example, and this just sets us up for chapter 12, 
Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and all Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. When he does, he will drive you out completely. So there is setting us up. Look at, drop down to verse 4. Chapter 11 through verse 6. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, And all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But then, God says, if my people will do something special, unique, I will not bring judgment on their household. I will not kill their firstborn sons. And we learn as the story unfolds that what that is, is God says, if you will kill a lamb, one of your choice lambs, and take the blood from that creature and smear it on your door frames of your home. Imagine doing that in your own house, on your outside door frame. God says, when I send out the destroyer, the angel of death, and he goes out through the night, and taking the lives of firstborn children and animals. When he sees blood on your doorpost from a lamb, he will pass over that home in judgment. A verb to pass over. I want to pick up the story, chapter 12. I'll be reading a few isolated verses. First, I'm going to begin with verse 3, 5, and 7 <clears throat> as it lays out the story. Tell the whole community, verse 3, chapter 12. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Verse 5. The animals you choose must be one-year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Drop down to verse 7. Then they are to take some of that blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of their houses where they eat the lambs. Now, on the face of it, kind of a strange thing to do. And yet God said, do this and I will spare that house when I come to it with the angel of death. Drop down to verses 12 and 13. On that same night, I will, strike, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment, interestingly here, on all the gods of Egypt. So this was not just judgment on Pharaoh and the people. Each of these plagues actually targeted one of the familiar Egyptian deities, gods. Just to show who the real God is. That these were not real gods. Verse 13. Well, in fact, at the end of verse 12, then they will know I am the Lord. The, the blood, verse 13, will be a sign for you on the households where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Notice verse 5, the lamb has to be without defect. And what will the angel of death do when it gets to that house? This is a verb at this point. It will pass over that home in judgment and not touch that home because of the blood. All right, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is you got a great picture of salvation. This is a beautiful picture of salvation. What's the key word here? Again, substitution. That's what's going on here. Substitution atonement. The lamb served as a substitute for the child, 
for the person who was going to be struck dead. His blood allowed God to pass over in judgment. Verse 5 says it has to be without defect. Why? Because Deuteronomy 17.1 is very clear that any animal with a flaw or defect is, quote, detestable to God. I just finished preaching a series in the Minor Prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and we saw in the very last message in Malachi that one of the things God nails the people for in that book was the fact that as they were sacrificing animals to the Lord, they were offering the most weakened, diseased, blind, and crippled animals to God, saying, this one's not worth anything, I'll give it to God. And if you know anything about your Bible... Very clear, God demands our best for our sacrifice, for our giving. And so one of the things he's very clear is it has to be a lamb without defect. And the Bible says this is a beautiful picture of what's wrong with the human race. What's wrong with the human race? I am. You are. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This whole story of the need of a perfect sacrifice is a reminder Young people, kids, adults, it is a reminder where we stand before God. We are sinners by conception, at birth, by nature, and by choice. We stand before a holy God alienated from him, and we need a substitute if there's any hope of avoiding judgment. And that's what this is a picture of. Finally, after the night of terror, God delivers the people. What's the name of this second book of the Bible? Exodus. Exodus. Why? Well... If you go to Greece today, and you're in the airport, and you're looking for your way out of the airport, and you look for what we would call an exit sign, you won't see exit signs in English, but you will see signs that say exodos, meaning exit. It's simply the Greek word for exit. This came from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. Hebrew actually has a different name for this book. But when these books were translated into Greek, 2nd century BC, it was given a Greek name, Exodus, simply means the exit. God instructed his people to observe then once a year. He said, look it, I want you to put together a ceremony every year from here on out to celebrate what I did in that great exit from Egypt. Usually it's celebrated around April, which is Nisan on the Hebrew calendar. What's the whole point of this kind of a ceremony once a year? Key word in the Bible, to remember. Same word used for the Lord's table. Do this to what? Remember me. See, we get fuzzy. Life gets crazy. Life goes nuts. Things happen. And we get fuzzy about things. That's why the scriptures constantly regularly call us back to remember, remember, don't forget, remember. That's the importance of being in the Bible each day. That's why we need to feed on God's book every day. That's why I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. And I need to preach God's promises to myself because I forget. And when we forget, we get discouraged. We get discouraged, we slow down. We slow down enough, we shut down. And we need to remember. And so God said, once a year, I want you to celebrate what I did by having a Passover. Now, that's no longer used as a verb at that point. It becomes a noun. It becomes a noun. It is an annual event called Passover. And it has a meal associated called what? A Seder. Seder. Actually, this coming spring, on Monday, Thursday of Good Friday week, we're going to have a Seder here at the church. 
And we're going to replicate it. Based Christian Blumenfeld is going to lead us in it, Messianic Jew, who will be leading us through that ancient meal, just like they did here, to celebrate. All right, let's plug into the story. We're given the ingredients of a Seder meal, a Passover meal, starting in chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. That same night, they're to eat meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat meat, the meat raw or boiled in water. Roast it over the fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it's left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it quickly or in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And what we discover is that that traditional meal, if you look at verse, for example, 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. That's what the, why was it to be unleavened? Because they had to leave quickly. It wasn't time for the bread to raise. Because it was on this very day I brought you out your divisions out of Egypt. One more paragraph, drop down to verse 24. Chapter 12, we give these instructions. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, hear this, hear this. When your children are asking, you know, down the road, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. The people bowed down and they worshiped. So this meal included what? Well, it had all the components in it to point back to this event. You have roasted lamb, you have unleavened bread, you have bitter herbs. Each component of the meal is designed to tell part of the story, just like communion, just like the Lord's Supper. You have the bread, you have the wine to tell the part about the broken body and the blood. It's pictorial. It's a picture. It's symbolic, but it's to help us not forget. Today's celebration of Passover is usually in the spring. It's on a Hebrew calendar, which is a lunar calendar. And it's on roughly the 15th day of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar, which usually falls sometime in April. When you think about it, we do the same. Every culture has these kind of special days about special events in the life of that culture, right? So just compare it for a moment to America, to our culture. We have Memorial Day where we honor veterans who have died. We have something like Independence Day, 4th of July, to celebrate freedom and what happened 200 and some 50 years ago. Or Veterans Day to honor veterans who are alive. Every culture, the point is, has these kinds of days that are designed to focus everyone on that special thing and to remember what happened. Something very significant in the life of that culture. And that's what Passover became, and that's when it became a noun, and it would become an annual event. All right, lastly, secondly, before we jump to the New Testament, the last thing given here is a picture of judgment. And this is graphic. I mean, this is interesting. God never shrinks back from taking full credit for his judgments and the terror of his judgments. Verses 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. 
From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And then we read how Pharaoh released the Jews and then decided in a moment of insanity, I better go chase my slave labor. He just let go all the slave labor and off they go into the desert. And the subsequent chapters tell what happened to Pharaoh as he rallied his army to go chase the Hebrews out into the Red Sea. I want to look at chapter 14 for just a second. Tells the end of the story. Pharaoh releases the Jews. Then he turns around and decides to pursue them only to be destroyed by God. And it's interesting. God takes credit for turning Pharaoh's mind around to go do this. 14 verses 5 to 8. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, which he said you can go, Pharaoh, is an Egyptian, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? Well, he did exactly what God ordained him to do. That's what he did. We've let the Israelites go and have lost our, their services. <laughs> Translation, we lost all our slave labor. So he made his chariots ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Interesting, verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. And then lastly, drop down to verse 23. As Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, if you don't know who Paul Harvey is, Google him. Not now. Google them. But here's the rest of the story. Verse 23 to 28. The Egyptians pursued them. Them meaning the Hebrews. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. If you know the story, the sea divided. God divided this whole sea. And it dried out. And the Hebrews marched right through the center of the Red Sea across. Pharaoh and his insanity and all of his army followed right down into the sea in the middle of it. This dry strip of property right through the uh, ocean there. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and he threw it into confusion. Who threw the Egyptian army into confusion? God did. Who caused Pharaoh's heart to be hardened to send him after the Hebrews? God did. This is a story with God written all over it. Verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. So he didn't just harden Pharaoh's heart. He hardened all the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Fascinating when you see the whole story. I want you to drop down verse 27 for just a minute. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. At daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the water. Verse 28, chapter 14, the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, and that that followed the Israelites into the sea, and not one of them survived. If you drop down to verse 25 for a second, I want you to notice he takes credit for jamming the wheels on the chariot. 
Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. He takes credit for every aspect of this thing all along the way. For hardening Pharaoh's heart in the first place. Then turning his heart to let everybody go. Then hardening his heart so he goes and chases them. And then they go chase him, and then God throws his army into confusion. He even messes up the wheels of the chariot, and then he sends them down in there, and then God brings the water over them and completely destroys them. It's got God written all over it. Look, the Bible teaches that God's earthly judgments point to his final day of judgment. We see that over and over again. We just, again, as I said, we just preached to the minor prophets. And one of the things we saw is that when it comes to something like a locust plague or something like that, it's a small day of the Lord that points to a greater day of the Lord that will come. And that's exactly what you have here. This judgment here points to someday there will be a final day of judgment that will come on the earth. Now, time to fast forward to the New Testament. The purpose here is to connect the dots between Passover and the death of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus ate the last supper with his disciples, okay, it's the night before he dies. It's the last supper. Almost everybody has heard of the last supper. We've all seen Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the last supper, which is kind of a weird rendering of it, but nonetheless, there it is in Milan, Italy. That wasn't just a normal meal. They're not just hanging out at Culver's or McDonald's having their last dinner together. There's something very unique about the Last Supper. And you know what it was? It was a Passover meal. That's what's so significant. We know from Matthew 26 and Mark 14 that the Last Supper Jesus had in Jerusalem with his disciples was a Passover meal. That is not to be overlooked. In other words, on the very night before his execution, the very night before He is going to offer his life as an atoning substitute sacrifice for the sins of his people. He is there with his disciples having a Passover meal. And what are they talking about at the Passover meal? The same thing the Hebrews have done for centuries. They were talking about lambs and blood and offering and substitution and God's mercy and God's judgment and God's salvation. And he's going through the story with his guys, obviously leading to the next day. And then here's what's even more fascinating that a lot of people don't really realize is according to Mark's account in Mark chapter 14, at one point during the meal, because the whole meal is designed to have all these different food ingredients and drink to point back to Exodus and Moses and the Passover story. According to Mark 14, At one point during this Passover Seder that Jesus has the night before he died, he slowly turned the focus from the book of Exodus and those events, and he turned the attention to himself. And he connected the dots for the people there. Enough so that in chapter 14, verse 24, he goes on to describe how his blood would be poured out for many. And now you have the rest of the story. The dots connect. That's why the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, calls Jesus, quote, our Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb. Meaning what? That Jesus is indeed the Passover lamb for all who believe. And that just like literally in the book of Exodus, any who are covered by the blood of Christ will not face God's coming judgment. If you're covered by the blood of the lamb, you will not face the judgment of God. Why? What's our key word today? 
substitution. That's the whole point here. Substitutionary atonement is the phrase theologians use. Now, here's the problem with substitutionary atonement. Okay? Here's the problem with clergy and a lot of seminaries in mainline denominations. I grew up in a mainline denomination, and this is a problem in the very denomination I grew up in today. And it is this. They don't like the concept of substitutionary atonement. They don't like the concept of a substitute that is needed. Why? Because, hear this well, young people hear this. Substitutionary atonement, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement says we are sinners who need a savior. And that is frankly not the message coming out of a lot of pulpits in our land. I grew up in a denomination where today it is the gospel of be nice. Be nice and all will be well. Well, that is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the gospel of the apostles. It is not the gospel of the New Testament. It's the gospel from hell. The gospel of the New Testament is not be nice and all will be well. The gospel of the New Testament is I am a sinner. I desperately need reconciliation and I need a substitute to take the judgment that would come to me unless I take refuge in that substitute. And that is why substitutionary atonement just isn't popular today. In fact, in one of the most famous sermons in American history, now when I say famous sermons in American history, probably the first sermon that came to mind, if you know anything about American history, would be Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, July 1741, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Okay, I think billing for the second most famous sermon in America could easily go to Harry Emerson Fosdick. Just over 100 years ago, May 1922, New York City, this guy is a rock star. He truly was. Harry Emerson Fosdick was billed as America's pastor. He was famous. In fact, just a couple years after this sermon, he was on the front of Time magazine. He was a celebrity pastor. <clears throat> and in May 1922, he got up in his pulpit in New York City and he preached a sermon called Shall the fundamentalists win? And in that sermon, he attacked the virgin birth. He attacked the inerrancy of scripture and he attacked the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He said these words. At one point in the middle of a sermon, I have the whole sermon at home. I have it all marked up in a little booklet. You can still buy the sermon online today. He complained about those who took their Bibles literally Imagine, in a sermon, here's a pastor complaining to the people about people who read their Bibles, literally. And he complained about those who believed, quote, that we have to have a special theory of the atonement. He complained about those who believed that the blood of our Lord was shed in a substitutionary death to placate an alienated God and make possible the welcome of the returning sinner, close quote. He mocked the whole idea and he ridiculed it. And that, I think, easily second most famous sermon in America, shall the fundamentalists win. Why? Because the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement says, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and we need a savior. And frankly, that's not a flattering message. But you know what? It's true. And the issue is not, do I like it or not? The issue is, is it what God's word teaches and it is it my only hope. That brings us to our summons this morning before we come to the Lord's table. Three summons coming out of Exodus 12 this morning. 
Number one, make sure you are covered by the blood of God's perfect lamb. Bible says Jesus is the Passover lamb, the perfect substitute for all who believe. But the Bible is also clear. Don't miss this, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible is also clear. Salvation's not some kind of automatic. We have to make a choice. We have to make a decision for Christ. The Bible could not be more clear. It says, John 3, 36, Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Some people forget that part. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And so the question this morning, kids, young people, adults, do you believe what the Bible says about your sin? In rebellion. Do you believe you're a lawbreaker? Do you believe you desperately need a savior and a substitute? If there's any hope, you're going to be reconciled to God forgiven. And that is the greatest need of the human race. The gospel is that any who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be passed over in judgment when God sees the blood of the lamb on you. Romans 10, 9. I don't know how you can make it any clearer. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you, what? Will be saved. One of my favorite preachers of all time, John MacArthur, Johnny Mac. Every once in a while, I, just need, I have a Mac attack and I, I need to have a dose of Johnny Mac. He says this about the cross. I love this. I'm going to read it twice. This is worth the price of admission today. Ready? Quote, on the cross, God treated Christ as if he had lived my life of sin so that he could treat me as if I had lived Christ's life of righteousness. That's good. Let me read that one more time. Quote, on the cross, God treated Christ as if he had lived my life of sin. He was made a curse and God poured out his wrath on him. So that God could treat me as if I had lived Christ's life of righteousness. That's the gospel. Religion is spelled what? D-O. What's the gospel spelled? D-O-N-E. That's the difference. Second takeaway this morning, second summons this morning is a little different, and it's this. When you look at the whole Exodus story and all that happened, remember that nothing is impossible with God. The story of the Passover and Exodus challenges small thinking about God. And something we all fall into. I do. I regularly fall into small thinking about God. Look at, there's a lot of us here this morning that need encouragement. We need hope. We need a fresh vision of God. We're slogging through life at the moment and it's, things are going on. And frankly, we're struggling to stay floating a lot, you know, keep our head above level. And we need a fresh vision of God. It's one of the beauties of a Sabbath. It's one of the beauties of the Lord's day and coming out once a week and getting together. That's why nothing can replace being live together. I mean, as I've said many times, Becky and I are very thankful for our live streaming service, but there's nothing that can compare to being together in person, worshiping and opening the scriptures and remembering. And the Exodus is a reminder of something, that this God is not some local tribal deity like the gods of Canaan. This is a God who dries up oceans. This is a God who deposes emperors. 
This is a God who changes the course of nations. And so I ask you this morning, what are you going through right now in life that you would put in the category impossible? That could never happen. Maybe it's a, a marriage that's just struggling or a financial crisis that you're not seeing any hope in or a wayward child or a, a healing, emotional or physical healing or deliverance from crippling fear or bondage to lust or bondage to doubt or a broken relationship. Whatever you would put in that slot, oh, that could never happen. It's impossible. Remember, the God of the Exodus is the God of the universe and he is all powerful. And the final takeaway, the final summons this morning, make sure you're sharing the gospel with others. That's the whole point of Passover, the noun. It's an annual event. Who's it targeted at? It says right in it, tell your children. A lot of us just think, well, I'll bring my kids to church occasionally when I come. Hopefully they'll catch something and we'll let the church do it. Ladies and gentlemen, dads, hello dads, you are the dean of education in your home. You are to be the one taking the lead to make sure you're evangelizing and discipling your children. Mom's critical, the church is critical, but the dad is to be leading the way. Why? Because we are to be teaching our children, not just Bible stories, but the story of the Bible. We're to be teaching them doctrine. And one of the best tools, let me suggest, as I often do, one of the best tools for evangelizing and discipling your children is a catechism. If you're not being intentional with your kids, you're not obeying Deuteronomy 6. We used the Westminster Shorter Catechism in our home with our kids for a number of years. It was a marvelous tool for teaching our kids doctrine and teaching them the big themes of the Bible. Westminster Shorter Catechism, you got the Heidelberg Catechism, or one of the newer ones, the New City Catechism that came out from Tim Keller's church. But it is one of the great tools for teaching the gospel to the next generation so that they don't forget and we don't forget. That is Passover, and that is how it points directly to the cross of Christ, and that takes us right into the Lord's table.